and he certainly was right about that. The world of the art market today is totally dominated by Warhol and that kind of art as investment vehicle, um, really dumb stuff is dominating the discourse of art. Uh, while, of course, and as we write about every month in New Criterion, there's a lot else happening out there, and that's what we like to uncover in our pages. That's James Pinero, executive editor of The New Criterion. This is the second installment of our two-part interview with James. In this episode, we hear a bit more about the history of The New Criterion, how it fit into the culture wars of the 80s and 90s, and what critics and editors like Victor Navasky of The Nation and Jed Pearl of The New Republic have thought about it. That and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, James Pinero, thanks so much for uh, coming uh, back on the podcast for round two of our interview, and thanks so much for having me in your office again. Oh, thanks for coming back. So, uh, I, I listened to our, our sort of first uh, section of the interview, and one thing I was wondering right off the bat uh, is, is, is a bit about the history of your journal. So uh, the new criterion was founded by Hilton Kramer. My first question is who was Hilton Kramer and what was his standing in the art world like? Well, as I think I, m- I mentioned in our previous meeting, Hilton Kramer uh, was the chief art critic of the New York Times, um, before that editor of Arts Magazine. And um, in 1982, uh, surprising everyone, especially surprising his colleagues at the New York Times, he left this position, which, in, if you're an art critic, is considered the top position in the field. He left the position to found uh, the new criterion with Samuel Lippmann. And I think the reasons he had for making that change were many. First, I know he wanted to write at longer length about art and culture, longer than the six or seven or 800 words he was required to continually pump out of the New York Times. So he wanted to go into greater depth uh, on his subjects. Um, But even then in 1982, and it certainly has just gotten, become much more apparent since then, he saw the writing on the wall about how commercial interests and political interests were really starting to influence the type of work that a critic was expected to do. And of course now, Uh, It's almost impossible for a critic to give a a negative review in a mainstream publication where, especially where, um, the the criticized party is an advertiser, for example. So Hilton, I think, recognized uh, that the the issues with conflicts um, and also saw a kind of dumbing down of criticism. Mm. So this is a little more amorphous, but it's this kind of pop interest, commercial interest, lifestyle interest, and of course, this type of writing has almost totally taken over mainstream publications, the one that still exists. So was was Kramer always considered um, a conservative critic as well? I ask because, you know, one thing that obviously would be very compelling and interesting about his choice to leave the Times would be, as you say, the fact that, I mean, he had, uh, he, he was essentially the top critic part of the establishment. Was his exit from the Times, did that have anything to do with his political opinions as well? Um, I, they certainly didn't help uh, his, his stay there. He was an iconoclast in many ways. Um, you know, Hilton came out of the, the world of the New York intellectual world. He was born in Gloucester, Massachusetts, but really came up in this very heady, 
moment of partisan review uh, uh, of Commentary Magazine. And I mean, and that's the world, the serious world of ideas that he knew and he wanted to, to live in. Um, and I should mention that actually many of his most important pieces, or some of them at least, were not even published in the New York Times. His perhaps most famous essay, um, The Age of the Avant-Garde, in which he identified the avant-garde as a kind of historical moment that he believes has been subsumed into popular culture. And so what we now claim is avant-garde is really just another mode of advertising and not avant-garde, not mm. truly avant-garde. That article was published in uh, Commentary Magazine originally, and it became the title of his um, first collection of essays, which is still uh, a masterpiece of a book. So actually, that... Reminds me of a line I encountered uh, in, I think it was a 2008 article in the New Republic by uh, a critic called Jed Pearl. So I'd like to quote uh, at least one interesting line from that article just to get your response to it. I think it touches on this question of, of pop art along with a number of other things that I'm hoping we could talk about. So the quote is this. Uh, when I read his craziest polemics, there were times when he seemed to believe that the New York Times and the New York Review of Books were responsible for everything that was wrong with American culture. I knew that behind the fire and brimstone there was the pain of a broken-hearted lover who, despite his irrepressibly upbeat demeanor, could not bear what Warholism had done to the world of artists and writers where he had always felt most at home. That was, of course, about Hilton Kramer. Okay, so there's a lot there, uh, but I think if we could just unpack this quotation, listeners might be able to get a better sense of Kramer's views on art as well as his difficult relationship with the art uh, and political sure. establishment. Yeah, right? Sure, yeah, so, sure. Let me, let me start by saying that Jed Pearl is a very good art critic, um, you know, uh, one of my models, certainly, and he's someone who, in the 1980s, uh, was our primary gallery critic and was in every issue for the, about the first 10 years um, and was something, I think, of a, of a Kramer protege. Uh, he and Hilton diverged politically. Um, Jed is a much more of a, of a, of a left-winger or a, that kind of liberal, um, disagreed with Hilton's politics, uh, but agreed on aesthetics. And so I, I, I think there's very little space between those two in the way they viewed let's say Warhol, and the destructive qualities of, uh, of Duchamp and Duchampianism. Um, so what I think Jed does, does see, what he saw in Hilton was how passionately Hilton viewed the world of ideas and the life of the mind, um, how much he regretted that commercialism in the form of Warholism uh, had taken over and dumbed down the, the, the discourse. And he certainly was right about that. The world of the art market today is totally dominated by Warhol and that kind of art as investment vehicle, um, really dumb stuff is dominating the discourse of art. Uh, while, of course, and as we write about every month in the Criterion, there's a lot else happening out there and that's what we like to uncover in our pages. Um, so there was the Warholism, and then there was the New York Review of Books, which, is, which represented, let's say, the radical new left of the 1960s, which is different from the old left that Hilton kind of more grew up in. And this was a radicalism that, and Hilton would always often mention this fact, that the New York Review of Books published the 
a diagram on how to make a Molotov cocktail mm. on its cover. And that's something that always stuck with Hilton. He was always mentioning this and deeply offended by this, this form of radicalism and, and thought it was culturally uh, highly destructive. So it's so interesting that someone like Jed Pearl, that is someone on the political left, uh, or at least a, a liberal, would spend 10 years writing for the new criterion. And the point that you made uh, that's very interesting and that I like to talk about is that Pearl and Kramer could agree on aesthetics while disagreeing about politics. That, that's striking to me because so often when we talk about art, we talk first about its, and we generally culturally, talk first about its political function and that art, like everything else in life, can't help but be political. Is that a position that Kramer would have agreed with? Um, uh, I think he would have disagreed with it, okay. that art uh, can and in many, many or most cases must exist outside of politics. And it motivated a lot of what he did as a critic and, and explains a lot of his career. Um, uh, you know, I, I, you, do you want to m- mention that Navasky quote? Because I think yes. that, that kind of factors in. We, we'd shared this this quote by Victor Navasky. Yeah, yeah, so we were talking about this before. I'll read it for uh, listeners. Um, so Victor Navasky, former editor of The Nation, uh, said this about Hilton Kramer. Quote, Hilton Kramer is brilliant, but he's guilty of a double standard. He says he started his magazine because the left had politicized criticism, but then when you read the new criterion, you see that he's doing the same thing, uh, end quote. So do you accept, uh, my, my question that I put to you uh, is, do you accept the grammar of this question, I suppose? Or that is, did Kramer set out to depoliticize art criticism generally, or just to advance a conservative critique of the art scene that would counterbalance the left? It's, it, the answer is that it's both of those things. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is, I think, the, the, the way to look at it. Uh, I've heard that quote from Victor before. It's, I think, Victor and Hilton, I saw them on stage together. They actually feel like, felt like old pals mm. when they were up there. But uh, I think it's a slightly unfair way that the left attacks the new criterion. Because absolutely the left has infused and occupied positions in culture. And from Hilton and our point of view, taken over and, and, uh, and required that culture only be seen through a certain lens. Now, how do you contend with that if you disagree with it? Well, you have to obviously get political yourself. Even if you want to extract it, you need a political sensibility to go in there to do that. And that's what the new criterion is about. So you have to kind of look at it from, let's say, the right-wing point of view, but also with a sensibility that, well, we're not trying to create a replacement political art. We're trying to depoliticize it, but politics are the required. It's the required um, um, solvent to make that happen so one so one counter argument or at least one reply that's sort of stewing has been stewing in my brain about that is that to say that art itself can be depoliticized or apolitical or that one can you know stand outside of politics and view a work of art in purely aesthetic terms would be called generally itself a kind of right-wing position because uh, to, to the view of some people perhaps on the left or liberals it would be a defense say of the status quo or something like that so i guess i guess what i've been wondering is could a liberal and conservative critic today uh, to a, a liberal critic and a conservative critic today sort of agree that art could in some sense be apolitical? Could you have, say, a Jed Pearl and an Hilton, 
Hilton Kramer coming together today and saying, you know what, let's put uh, let's put politics aside and try to write about art, uh, sort of apolitically, or is that an untenable position? No, I think it's definitely possible. I I, I share um, uh, I, I share a great deal of respect for writers who don't share my politics, and uh, and I appreciate their aesthetic judgment. Um, you know, I think most people don't want politics to to infuse and totally occupy the artistic field. Just people, it's that is a limiting, it's a limiting force, limiting energy, um, and I think it it um, attacks what makes art one thing that makes art so valuable, which is the freedom of and liberty of the artists to pursue what they want. So. Uh, what you said before about, well, isn't it very right-wing to say that you can depoliticize something? Well, I guess if that's your position, then we're going to be always right-wing to you. Um, we would say that, you know, the, the leftist position that everything needs to be politicized, which is a, a very Marxist point of view, is incorrect. And it is itself a lens in which to see things that, that perhaps need to be, needs to be removed. So I'm just wondering really quickly, are there any... Um critics you would say in addition to Pearl on the left or liberal critics who's writing about art you admire yeah sure I mean uh, there are websites like Hyperallergic um, which has a, a certainly a, a, a neo uh, leftist point of view um, I disagree with their politics um, almost 100% but their coverage of art can be very good and they're covering art that mainstream publications like the New York Times just won't cover, art that I that I also like to cover, and so we find a lot of common ground in that art, such as well, such as let's say, beyond the blue chip galleries. So the New York Times will pursue what's happening in the big mega galleries, or the big museums that are buying advertisements in the publication. A website like Hyperallergic, or or like what we do here at New Criterion, we're nonprofit, so we're not advertising based and driven. Uh, we can really follow our bliss much more as writers and, and pursue the art that excites us. And that's, that's what I'm always interested in doing. So just a bit more about the history of the journal then and where the new criterion sort of, uh, sort of gets its um, intellectual and aesthetic uh, um, guidance. So the new criterion gets its name, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong excuse me about this, from, from T.S. Eliot's old journal, The Criterion. That's right. So, so what's the journal's debt then to T.S. Eliot? Well, we, we like to mention that T.S. Eliot's Criterion, which existed for about 16 years, starting in 1922, had, um, it was vastly influential, published uh, an early version of The Wasteland. But, um, you know, it had, its first run had 600 subscribers, or a run of 600. Uh, well, we're, we're many times that. We're small, uh, but it goes to show you that you don't have to be printing a million copies to be influential. And so that's the model of we, that we start and, and take the new criterion um, is to be a serious, small circulation journal, but, but publishing um, what we like to think of as, as highly um, um, influential writing. So I'm, I'm wondering as well just about, say, intellectual or critical influences. So there's Eliot, I think the other day, uh, when I, we might have just been talking after, you also mentioned... Edmund Burke. Um, could you sure. Just, yeah. yeah. So, uh, to your listeners out there, as I mentioned, we are a nonprofit, and uh, one thing we do for our donors, 
our readers who donate to the magazine is we organize a, a, a yearly gala honor called the Edmund Burke Award. I think we're in our sixth year with that. And this year's honoree is Philippe de Montebello, uh, who is the director emeritus of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and a great cultural force um, in New York since, uh, since the 1970s. Really saved that museum and, and put it on the right track. Um, and was a counterforce, I think, to many of the more destructive aspects in, in museum culture. So I'm delighted we can honor him. With the Edmund Burke Award, past honorees have been Hilton, um, sorry, Henry Kissinger, uh, Ion Hersiali, mm. Charles Murray, um, uh, Don Kagan. Uh, and so you see it's a mixture of kind of political writers um, and cultural figures. Uh, the reason we named it after Edmund Burke is uh, Burke, uh, the great 18th century um, statesman and philosopher, in many ways epitomizes our version of conservatism. Uh, for one thing, and he doesn't always get credit for this, he uh, w was very in interested in aesthetics. Um, you know, he published early on uh, a kind of analysis of the sublime and the beautiful and the differences between the two, the beautiful, um, the attractive versus the terrifying qualities of the sublime, kind of tracked the differences between classical and, and romanticism. Uh, within that model and uh, was influential on other writers after that. So he has the aesthetic sensibility, but then of course he has a, you know, his very famous writing on the French Revolution and on the American Revolution. Um, he was someone who kind of understood the value of tradition beyond just what, what was done we should continue to do, but kind of made it into um, a philosophy and the need for custom and maintaining the uh, the good things of society and maintaining culture. So I guess that, that relates to a question I've, I, I have for you as well, James, which is what's the relationship between the art sections and the intellectual life sections of your journal? And I wonder because uh, the people you listed, um, the Edmund Burke Award winners, um, Kissinger, Ayan Hersey Ali, uh, obviously these are people outside the art scene generally. Um, so... D does the intellectual life section of your journal and the uh, influences that you have in terms of uh, political thinking, what effect, if any, do you think they have on the art section of your journal? Is there, is there a general relationship or a direct relationship? It's, a, it's an interesting question. We're a, we're a wide-ranging cultural journal, and to your listeners out there who maybe just, you know, art's not your thing, there's a lot else in the new Criterion every month. I mean, some people read the magazine just for the poetry. They love the poetry section. We publish poems, contemporary poetry. We publish um, a very influential uh, poetry roundup um, every five issues by William Logan. That gets read, read by everyone in the poetry world. Um, you know, we have our art reviews, our theater reviews, classical music reviews every month. Uh, then we have lead features. We have book reviews. Uh, what we're trying to do really is always create a mix. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking for. Um, you know, my column, which is on museums and galleries, uh, is in, uh, in the middle of the magazine. And we have other columnists who are always there. Jay Nordlinger on music, uh, James Bowman on the media, uh, Kyle Smith now on theater, um, and Karen Wilkin on art as well. So we, uh, we have those, those, you're going to get that every month, but then we have a mixture of features that could be a, a look back on, an, on, a, 
underknown writer that we'd like to re rediscover. And we like to think that these articles kind of become the standard bearer. You look up this person 10, 15 years from now, you say, oh, the New Criterion did a long piece on this. This is a great reference for me. Um, and, uh, and more polemic pieces as well, mm -hmm. or, or, uh, or more political pieces, um, maybe a piece tied a little bit more to the news, although we tend to be, we're definitely not news cycle in terms of many, the way many political publications are. It's a mix. We know many of our readers come from through for they come to us through one door and they may leave through many doors i see so I, that that's interesting because it, it just seems like um the sections of your journal that aren't committed to art would kind of be like a more culturally inclined or culturally aware national review or weekly standard or something like that where you have a, a great deal of just con, uh, of conservative critique from a variety of vantages, but the the art section of your journal, you know, it's interesting. When I read the Jed Pearl article, say mm -hmm. about Hilton Kramer and about the New Criterion, the suggestion, and I think in that article as well as some others, is that the New Criterion was sort of this lone voice of conservative dissent in the art scene. Mm -hmm. So, do you think, um, do you think that Kramer, when he was sort of leading this art journal, felt like he was always, in a sense, the kind of loyal opposition to the progressive mainstream in the art world. Yes, I think yes. The answer is yes. Um, you know, I had I had the benefit of working, overlapping with Hilton a little bit during some of his last good years here at the magazine. Uh, he was still filing his weekly column for the New York Observer at that time, in addition to being our editor here. Um, and he would come in and sit down to his typewriter and pluck it out and then in half hour later be done with his column. And I got the sense, you know, he was, he was very spare um, in his life. I, you know, he visited his, he kept an apartment here in the city and it was covered with little pictures of writers who influenced him. So a Baudelaire, a mm. picture of Baudelaire on the wall. That's what he was all about, totally in the life of the mind. He, he lived that life, truly lived it. And I think that he saw himself as a little bit of the whistleblower of what, what had happened. Um, he was a truth teller in that way. And he was not a, at all afraid to say something that may be unpopular or, um, or go against the establishment if he believes it to be true. And many times that put him at cross purposes uh, with uh, a lot, uh, not only politically, but with the whole commercial side of what he was writing about. Do, do you and do you and perhaps Roger Kimball, although I know you um, might not be able to, sp to speak for him, but I, I guess just as, as executive editor, do you retain a sense of being the loyal opposition, uh, the conservative dissenter in the mainstream art establishment trying to get uh, trying to get sort of converts in the mainstream or do you feel in a sense like you're you're writing for a remnant I've heard that term thrown around by um, or used by some conservative writers that they feel not necessarily like they're writing f to convert the mainstream but that they're just writing for this this core group of people who might um, p p persevere through yeah well I think it's a little bit of a combination so in the in the remnant mode it's a, there is a little bit of the kind of feeling that you know we are the monastic few kind of preserving recording uh, a culture that is somewhat lost and, and continues to be lost at the same time 
it's not totally lost. And certainly we believe that as our message and as our articles get out there, there will be converts. Maybe not political converts, but um, we believe we're telling the truth. We believe we're seeing things in, a, in an important way. Um, and if people just saw these things that way and, and, we, and we can convince them, uh, there will be converts. And I, many, many, I have many, many readers uh, from my column, from, for all the columns that we, that we feature, um, who do not share the politics of the magazine. You know, they disagree with a lot of it, but so what? You know mm -hmm. that's what's great about this magazine is that you can read it, you can disagree with it, you can, you can, you can consider it, and that's what we're about. We're, we're about that kind of conversation, having an open conversation. It's very exciting for me to be part of it. I truly believe in the mission here and what we're doing. Uh, I think it's one reason this magazine actually has, as much bigger publications over the last ten years have withered. We have grown. We're twice as big as we were 10 years ago. Our circulation continues to go up. Um, our website is as good as uh, much larger publications. I think it's as good as the New Yorker's website in terms of get it on your phone. Like there's, a, there's something really happening here. Uh, it's very exciting. Things can turn. You know, that's what we realize. You know, look at Time Magazine today. It's practically dead. Who would have predicted that? And here we are 35 years later still going very strong. What do you attribute the recent sort of rise and not, not recent, but say over the last decade, the kind of general steady increase in readership for your journal? Um, I, you know, the factors that have really um, killed a lot of print. So the loss of primarily, primarily the loss of print ad revenue uh, was never a factor here. Uh, we're a nonprofit. So the internet which killed that revenue stream. On the flip side, allowed us to get our message out much wider. So, you know, before we were a print publication with a small circulation. Now we're a print publication that still has a small circulation, but we have a very much bigger circulation on, online. We're very active in social media. Well, we can do podcasts like you're doing now. Um, and this is reaching a whole new audiences. Uh, so the barriers are much lower. I think it's actually a very good time for small niche publications like New Criterion. We're not the only ones who have done well in this in this new environment. Paris Review is doing well. Uh, I, other small publications are doing well. Uh, I'm glad to see it. You know, I, I think it's a better world with many small publications like ours thriving than with a couple behemoths, kind of middle brown publications like Time, uh, who uh, these you know are like enormous ships at sea. You know, we're more nimble in what we can do. Uh, we don't have to follow the the advertisers in what we do. So you have a um, you have a series coming out on the perils and promise of populism. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Sure. So this is a, a we do a series like this every five years on our anniversary. This is our thirty fifth anniversary, where we commission ten essays, one for each of our issues through the year as the lead feature, a longer feature than we would otherwise run. They tend to be eight to ten pages in the magazine. Um, last summer and last spring as we were considering what should the series be this time you know clearly there was there were aspects of populism in the air that uh, hadn't fully coalesced but it was evident that even even with beyond Trump there was Bernie Sanders there was the the Brexit movement although that had that vote hadn't occurred yet um, 
and we said, well, how can the new criterion enter this discussion in its own way? And we did it with by stepping back. We started with an essay by George Nash on the history of populism in the American conservative movement, um, and then moved on to Barry Strauss talking about the proto-populism of the Roman Republic. Uh, we had Fred Siegel on populism in the 19th, American 1930s, and um, and H. L. Mencken, uh, James Pearson on populism and the founders, uh, and then we're we're moving on with essays by Andrew McCarthy, Andrew C. McCarthy, um, Roger Scruton, who will be talking about populism and identity, and uh, and Roger Kimball with usually the, with the final essay. These these ten essays are already available on our up to this point, I think we published six of them, are all available on our website, um, free to subscribers. And at the end of the season, and we publish from September to June, so at the end of that season, we collect them and publish them in a hard copy book uh, through Encounter Books. And I think the title is going to be Vox Populi. Uh, maybe it'll be Vox Populi, The Perils and Promises of Populism. Uh, of course, when we started it, we actually called it just the perils of populism. But when we saw the Brexit vote, which is something that as a magazine we've been advocating for for many years uh, as, a, as a kind of popular vote, we said, well, maybe we should add promises. So it's actually a more mixed approach and probably a better one to do it that way. So uh, when I think of... Um we talked uh, last time about uh, the Detroit Institute of Art briefly. And so uh, when, you, when you just brought up populism, I thought immediately of Diego Rivera's, uh, is it that, that large mural, right? Yes. Yes. Um, how, do you, how does one identify populism in art? Well, I don't know. I mean, art is generally not a populist medium. Uh, it tends to be somewhat esoteric, individualized. Uh, you mentioned Diego Rivera, so I suppose the Mexican muralists were trying for a more popular version of what to, traditionally is a kind of small paintings. You know, murals can be shared. Uh, Diego Rivera certainly wanted to see a kind of popular appreciation of art. It paralleled the WPA here in the 1930s and the mural artists that came out of that. Um, that's a great by the way I should say the Diego Rivera murals are great murals mm -hmm. I mean they're terrific uh, it's interesting to consider that you know, here he is uh, a Stalinist essentially who was um, you know brought in by Ford to make this mural in Detroit and then brought by Rockefeller to make a, another mural in New York City which eventually was destroyed through a kind of political conflict mm -hmm. with his patronage so even these titans of in American industry were attracted to this kind of art that he was doing at the time. And uh, there actually was just a great show of uh, Mexican art, Mexican modernism at the, at the, um, uh, in um, Philadelphia at the PMA, just closed. Uh, I have to say, seeing this show, I really want to get to Mex Mexico City to see all the mural art that's down there. But, you know, I think... Art often will stand in opposition to populism. It naturally probably does. It's, a, it's an interior 
phenomenon, the appreciation of art, tends to be quite private. Uh, you know, we don't go to the art gallery and and start chanting. You know, we usually we're quiet. Or, uh, we turn inward. Uh, that's probably what Rivera was going against in what he was trying to do with murals. But I think actually it's a bit of a fallacy the way many museums now chase the numbers to say, oh, it was a very popular show. That means it's a very good show. We had record attendance at this show or that show. Something we had, here at the magazine have been talking about for a long time, that don't use populism as a justification for aesthetics or what you're doing in the art world. In many ways, if it's unpopular, it might be better art. James, thanks so much for talking <laughs> with me again. Well, thanks for coming back. That was James Pinero, executive editor of The New Criterion. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and I think everyone this year is very much interested in the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.